Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Um, Oren McIntyre is one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. That's because I seem to agree with him so often. Um, but uh, he's a host and columnist with The Blaze. Uh, he's also the um, he has a self-titled podcast, Oren McIntyre, so you can hear his thoughts. And he also has a Substack where where he um, writes short columns and and otherwise. Uh, puts forward his ideas. You can find him in all of those places. Oren, welcome so much. Uh, welcome to High Noon. I'm really glad to have you. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, so we've been like, I feel like we've been going back and forth on a lot of the same topics, like on your show, on Twitter. Um, but I really wanted to to start out with asking you what you think the the sort of origin story of, for lack of a better term, wokeness is, um, because I, I feel like this is something uh, with which you put forward really well. And then um, with, with, with which I really agree with your version of events rather than um, let's say some of the more centrist versions of events of how we got where we are in 2023. So um, do you, when did you, th- when do you think the origins of this new ideology really started? Um, and how did it seize power? Is this something that happened in the last five years, the last 15 years, the last 50 years, like 500 years, right? You know, from the range of Sarab Akhmari, uh, 1250, you know, to this only happened in 2019 or 2020. Where do you put the origin of, of where we're at? Well, I think the key thing is pushing it back against the idea that it's new, right? Like that's the big thing for a lot of kind of centrists, a lot of people who have drifted over from the left, the IDW type people. You know, they think that wokeness is a development of the last 10, 15 years. Liberalism just kind of got a little out of whack. It went a little off the rails. And if we could just kind of roll things back maybe to the 1990s, then we could we get a handle on this whole thing and return to the good old days of of institutional neutrality and free speech and all that stuff. Uh, but of course, I think uh, as both of us would would probably attest to, this goes back a lot farther. The problem is that the ideology is really multifaceted. So of course, you have a big part of it which is tied to the civil rights revolution in the United States. I think there's a, a pretty good case to be made that as well-meaning as it was, and Christopher Caldwell puts this this forward in his book, um, uh, uh, which I'm suddenly blanking on the name of, uh, Age of Entitlement. Entitlement. Yes. Um, but, but, you know, he puts forward the case that a large number of this stuff is built into civil rights law and the incentives that it allows uh, for different groups to kind of gain access to a second and more powerful constitution that circumvents the kind of regular rule of law of the United States. But there are many other factors to it. I think the managerial revolution plays a big part of the, in, in this uh, as well. This is why you've seen businesses and government agencies and sports teams, banks, like all these things jump on board this doctrine in the last you know few you know decade or two very very powerfully because there's a highest incentive built into that structure as well there's also really just the inevitable uh ideolo- ideological strain that kind of runs through liberalism and then into progressivism and then into wokeness that i think eventually leads you to where you're at so i think there's a lot of places you can kind of tie it to yeah, this this is something that annoys me as well because there isn't actually, and you know, I have my disagreements um, in terms of pushing it all the way back, perhaps into the Enlightenment. Um, but I, I do, I, it, it's it's there's no difference between the left in 1968 and the left today except power. 
right? All of the same concepts, what we call wokeness, was already a large part of the new left in 1968. Like, yeah, maybe they used a slightly different lingo for it. Uh, maybe they hadn't quite, you know, gotten to the point where they thought that, you know, women could have penises, but they had already deconstructed all of the concepts around biological sex, for example, in that in that um, particular direction or that particular example, right? A lot of this and a lot of the racial stuff and the, the framework that we currently work under in the civil rights um, was not that distinguishable in the 1960s. And, and so it's, it's very annoying to me um, when people pretend that this came out of, of somehow either the summer of 2020 um, or out of somewhere in like between 2015 and 2017, everyone just went insane and there were no antecedents to this. And it seems like a way of not taking responsibility for how more center liberal ideas really did birth this this ideology that they now want to disown. Yeah, absolutely. And this is also really prevalent, let's be honest, in the conservative movement, right? A lot of this stuff has been onboarded. A lot of people have a very difficult time separating this ideology and its implications from some of the things they might like about, you know, the ability of people to live their lives a certain way or the way that people are treated in different scenarios. And so it's very difficult for people to uncouple, you know, the, this idea of wokeness from, again, you know, civil rights law as it pertains to women or uh, racial minorities or other groups as well. And so it's a very sticky situation because you can't really avoid the fact that, like you said, all of these pr arguments were present in like original feminism or the original civil rights, uh, you know, uh, debate when it comes to things like segregation and such. Like all of these proto arguments were already deeply nested in that. And people, you know, understandably in both the center and the right don't want to touch some of that stuff. And so it's a very sticky thing to get into. And so they'd rather just pretend that it kind of emerged magically out of the colleges in, you know, 2013 or, you know, something with, with, you know, consent forms or something when it comes to, to college sex or whatever, like pretending like the, you know, the, the campus protests in 2015 where they're, you know, chasing people down and yelling at Ben Shapiro or whatever, that's the beginning of wokeness, but it's very clearly not. These things go back much, much further. Yeah. I, I think um, I, I, I've always been a little bit skeptical so to the extent to which it was enshrined in law in 1964. Um, so I, I, you know, I read Age of Entitlement. I um, listened to Christopher Caldwell talk about this. And I, I've actually, I think he underestimates the changes that were made in the 80s and 90s. Now, I think they might be ideologically difficult to fend off. I think that there there is an argument there. And, and the fundamental problem um, that left and right both have with dealing with this sort of um I don't know, you might call it like equity versus equal opportunity, right? Is is the, the fundamental in, in unequal outcomes. Um, you need an explanation for that, right? If you have that kind of underlying blank slate, everybody absent like certain conditions will end up um, having the same sort of, of outcomes, um, especially if you measure per group, then it is like you are kind of stuck in this loop where you can't, um, like you have to either say we need to improve equality of opportunity endlessly and become like a perfect meritocracy, um, which which has its its downsides as well, or um, and then be very disappointed when that turns out not to yield equal outcomes, um, or you you go the Ibram Kendi route and you say like no, any kind of disparity is evidence of discrimination, and every disparity means that the system has is incomplete in in its revolution towards real equality. Um, but th there were some, legally speaking, there were some massive changes into the law in the 90s um, that I think 
really did create, as you always talk about, I think so well, uh, an incentive structure for especially the private sector to start aggressively enforcing this stuff that, that the Civil Rights Act itself of 64 really did not until all of those additional incentives. And we can't, I'm not going to go into them because they're, they're quite boring. Actually, I, I really want to have Gail Harriet on this podcast at some point to explain them. But um, basically, everyone stood to make a lot of money by suing companies. <laughs> That's the short, mm-hmm. um, the short version. And it made it much easier to, to sue for, for essentially for offense. Um, and I think that like th- those incentives, as you always talk about, it's very important uh, in terms of how people choose their politics, it's not like everybody woke up one day in 2015 and suddenly decided we're all going to buy into this this sort of uh, this extreme radical version of woke politics. One, there were antecedents built in before that, but two, there were like a lot of incentives to buy into this. You buy into this ideology, you know, you can get a job like Yul Roth for you know six or even seven figures policing the speech of the president of the United States, right? Um, and or just a six figure job that, you know, um, is is essentially ideological compliance. If you if you disagree with these ideas, we punish you severely institutionally. You won't have a job. Your your friends will turn away from you. You'll be banned from platforms. Right. These kinds of institutional incentives obviously affect where people land on on these issues. Yeah, no, that that's exactly right. I'm just say I I think that the incentive structure and its explosion in the '90s probably does speak to a lot of the acceleration. It's just that that incentive structure also existed around the events of the 1960s, right? Like Great Society, all this stuff is built around building the government infrastructure and creating make work jobs, handing out all kinds of particular uh, benefits, you know, based on this kind of infrastructure. And so what we saw was this move from being strictly a, mostly a government thing into corporations, right? In, into built into um, the, the incentive into your HR management and that kind of thing. And of course, at every level, as soon as this becomes something that's easily, easily actionable in the courts, then you need to build additional compliance into your uh, companies at every level, you need to have, you know, people making sure that they're checking your know, commissars inside every single organization to double check and make sure that everyone is constantly in compliance with the state edicts across all this stuff. So yeah, that, that is a huge issue that, uh, you know, the right often ignores is how much the patronage is built into this, that every time the left gets to accelerate this, gets to create a new part of the civil rights revolution, they get to add additional jobs, additional pay, uh, people who are loyal to the party. Like you said, Joel Roth, I mean, you got this guy, probably a relatively mediocre, uh, you know, life in most ways, but all of a sudden he's going to end up getting to police the president of the United States' speech. I mean, that kind of power handed down to someone who otherwise probably would not have had a very impressive job or a very impressive life is the kind of thing that builds deep bonds of loyalty to a political movement. People will stand in traffic for that kind of power. And so I, and literally do. Um, and so I, I think it's important for the right to understand that when the left is handing these ideological structures over to their activists, they're doing so because people get paid, people get promoted, people get status, all that is built on that. But I do think that structure goes back a very far away. I don't think it started in 2010 and I don't think it started in the 1990s either. Um, what, what would a, a patronage network on the right look like, right? In other words, how can the right um, 
start to, and, and obviously we're starting from um, something that <laughs> has, has for many decades and we can <laughs> fight about exactly how many decades, but has for many decades created all of the in- incentives and patriotic net- networks for the left. You know, how does the right now start? Um, Cause it seems like actually in a wholly private context, the right has, a pretty decent patronage network, basically for conservative ink, right? Um, the, mm. And and it's an interesting thing that it's been so ineffective in terms of actually um, creating the change that they say that they're doing, but it has been really uh, effective in, in identifying young talent, making sure people have a comfortable paycheck, um, making sure, especially in this day and age, that, I mean, something that I'm extremely grateful for uh, to, to Independent Women's Forum, and I know uh, my colleagues are grateful as well, is we, I don't operate in an environment where I have to worry about losing my job um, or, or getting canceled. I, I, you know, can say whatever I want, even if, if my colleagues disagree with it, because we don't even have a one voice policy the way that, for example, Heritage does. So it seems like we have made this wholly private kind of patronage network, but it's a very tiny percentage of people and it's only people directly involved in politics. So it seems like kind of like when people say that cancel culture isn't a thing because if you're already famous and you get canceled and then you end up making a sub stack or whatever and making money like Barry Weiss, right? Um, that, that doesn't mean anything to the the typical person who's not, who doesn't want to build a sub stack or a podcast or whatever, um, who just wants to like have a non-political job. It's very, very difficult for that person. There's no support from the right for that person. Um, so how do we build that kind of actual, I guess, non-political patronage network. Yeah, it's an incredibly difficult problem. Like you said, there is, to some extent, the ability of the right to kind of pick up and clean off media figures and and protect them and provide them opportunities. And that's why I think so often when I talk to people, you know, who are who have been doing this for a long time, they say, oh, well, all we need is people to just kind of stand up and speak the truth and, and you know, speak their mind, have the courage of the conviction, and we'll kind of solve this problem. But that's really easy to say when you're being paid by, you know, and in, in institution which pays you specifically to say your opinions and maybe won't fire you has the courage not to fire you when you know some group comes after you Uh, but that's not the case for the average person it's good to have a network that protects these people and there are guys uh like new foundings out there uh you know, uh, that are building networks for people who are looking for non-woke employment, looking for friendly employment, uh, trying to connect themselves with uh, organizations, companies that are aligned with their values and won't cancel them the first time they kind of step out of line. So that's a good thing. Like that's a, that's really good work that they're doing. And, and I think that's an essential step. If, if I could wave one, a wand and change like one thing about the conservative movement, it would be have like a full scale uncancelable network of employment for people. So people can step out and, and, and kind of say these things that are important and not have to worry about getting destroyed. That is not itself a patronage network. That That's like a, that's like a, you know, a, a, an insurance policy, and it's a good one. It's it's a necessary one. But if we're talking about a patronage network, we're talking about the willingness of, let's you know, using government power and in institutions to reward people who are more likely to support your movement. And that's kind of 
something that the conservative movement is at this point basically ideologically opposed to on just basic grounds. We're the small government guys. We don't believe in using government power. We don't believe in this stuff. And so anytime we're in power, we put the brakes on. And anytime the left's in power, they build a massive network that protects and rewards everyone who is ideologically aligned with them. So, I mean, the first step is just being willing to even protect and reward people who support you politically. And then the has to ask the question, who does that? Like not defense contractors or, you know, broadcast journalists, but like, who are the people that actually vote for the Republican base? And what are you actually going to do to better their lives? What are you going to do? What institution are you going to build? What program are you going to create to make it easier for them to have families and protect their businesses and protect their, uh, their religious convictions? Like what are you actually going to do with government power to make that tenable as opposed to just saying like, well, we'll just make sure that the government takes 5% less of your money. Yeah. Um, I think the average person, even maybe especially on the right, underestimates just how much of the left's cultural power is directly funded by government, mm-hmm. um, by grants, by like every and that those huge budgets. A lot of that is spinning off into NGOs, into grant programs, into scholarship funds, into um, you know preferential loaning. Right? There's a huge amount of of federal money and and state money, honestly, too. And the most obvious example is $800 billion a year um, to K-12 education, right? Which is whole, I mean, more or less wholly owned by the left at this point. Um, And same thing with the university network. And those are public funds um, that are, and and so I I wholly agree with you that there's no way, um, when I say that we've created sort of a private, a small private patronage network, um, I think the only thing it's really been successful in is exactly supporting a few people. And it hasn't always done that either because uh, the right is so um, willing to fire right, you know, that uh, it's often canceled its own. But in, in its best form, it has provided like, I don't know, Heritage Foundation is kind of an alternative to the universities. The Heritage Foundation creates a lot of the same product that universities have. But the big difference is, and perhaps I'm using the word patronage wrong then, and perhaps the the real like sort of benefit of a patronage network is that it's universities, elite universities are pipeline to real power um, in government and outside of it. Whereas the think tank world on the right is not, right? It's just a place to park people who want to say interesting things or maybe do some interesting research that is not going to happen in the universities. Yeah, I think that, again, the intellectual pursuits are good. Uh, Those are essential. But I don't even think that, honestly, the think tank networks really do a great job of some of that, right? Like many of the most interesting thinkers on the right have been all but cast aside by the movement for many decades. They've been ostracized. They've been out in the wilderness. And so I don't think, honestly, much of the intellectual work even being done in the think tank sphere was particularly groundbreaking or producing significant results. I mean, I, I, I don't want to cast aspersions on people who are doing work there. I'm sure there are people who are doing very good work. But let's be honest, how is this materializing anywhere, right? Like, So, so that's, that's sort of really, I, I think if you're, because you're really thinking about this as intellectuals, I'm not thinking about it that way. Okay, but sure. It's policy, right? Um the, the think tank network uh, on the right writes policy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and they do it quite successfully. Uh, but the but the problem is there are ideological constraints that you're pointing out, and so many people are pointing out correctly on the right that that um, makes that even their policy when it is effectuated not have the kind of they're not racking up the kind of W's that that they need to right. But in terms of right. the actual mechanism, you know. That that policy work does find its way into legislation. It finds its way into regulation. It finds its way, especially on the state level. Like it, it, it there is a function there that's very important. Um, but it misses. But, but if it doesn't bear fruit, does it? How much does it matter? You know what I mean? Like I, I hear what you're saying. You're you're right that that the language is making it into things. But if it doesn't bear fruit, what's what's its actual value? Right. But that's an ideological problem, right? Like th- that's that's sure. a problem. Of, like. Uh, changing what the right is, um, which which I agree with you on. But the, the mechanism, I'm thinking like just structurally, right? The mechanism mm-hmm. of, of being able to write policy and having it show up, um, I actually think the right has been quite successful in, in doing, um, especially on some, like a lot of the things, the problem is that the policy they choose to work on, as you've pointed out, is often not very important to the trajectory of the country, right? Um, mm. So like tax cuts, I, look, I like keeping more of my own money and whatever. But um, it's obviously not at this point changing the trajectory of the country. And it wasn't changing the trajectory of the country in, in 1983 either. Um, so th- that's that's an ideological problem. I'm thinking about just purely like the structural, you know, what is the purpose? Um, if, for example, you had a successful sort of ideological right wing that is producing policy that is, let's say, more closer to the heart of where left the left's power comes from. I think we actually do have the mechanism to implement that um, through like think tanks and stuff. Which actually, I mean, the left is kind of jealous of this, which is hilarious to me because the powers that they have hold are so much more effective. Mm. Uh, but that's why you have the hysteria over like groups like Alec, for example. Um, you have just this utter hysteria on the left, like because the same language will find itself into um, in a bunch of bills in different states. So I think we are successful in that. It's just ideologically. I, th- I think that the ideological constraints are are what you're pointing to. And that's the reason that it's so unsuccessful. Am I wrong? Is there some some other uh, other modification or, or other pushback you would you would make on that concept? No, fair enough. I mean, it's, the think tank world is certainly not one I'm super familiar with. So it may indeed be the case that that's an effective uh, avenue that just needs a tweak. But I, I just I wouldn't know. Uh, like I said, just looking at the fruits of, of what has come out of there consistently, it, it does not seem to to bear out significant results that the, the results that may end up in legislation, but those that don't actually bear fruit in in actual changes for the country, like you pointed out. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I wouldn't call it a tweak because it requires like ripping out the heart and soul of yeah, essentially yeah. the 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 conservative movement, right? Um, so I, I don't call that a, I don't call that a tweak, but I think structurally there there are avenues that actually do function on the right, but they've been directed towards ends that are not effective and never are going to be effective. That's you know sort of my change of mind over the last, I don't know, five, seven years. But, um, but what, so what would then, what would the public patronage network look like? Like, give me an example of, of what, what the right could do to create um, a a public patronage network that would be equivalent, say, to um, the fact that there are all these jobs available. There are all these preferential loans available. There are all these, you know, essentially to protect our own. Like what, what would a, a Republican party that is interested in making 
the average Republican voter, um, making him feel like uh, protected and um, his life improved by some form of actual patronage. Well, I think, you know, you're pointing to the K through 12 education system is huge, right? Like this is basically a massive donation to the left. It does pretty much everything for them. It gets kids hooked onto ideology from the very beginning. It gets parents used to the idea that the state will care for their children from birth to to death, you know, that they'll be the providers of food and that they'll be the the therapeutic culture that actually ends up raising your children and giving them values and, and all of these things. So it is an amazing just monolith of leftist influence, along with, of course, all the financial benefits, all the make work jobs, everything else, the, the propaganda distribution. So if you have something like that, you know, on, on, on the left, then you need to figure out what does that look like on the right? Now, the right probably doesn't want to cent- just taking over public education probably doesn't work directly because at this point, public education is just uh, distributed leftism. Like that is the, the, you know, God bless, you know, Chris Rufo and what he's doing, but getting CRT out of schools is impossible because CRT is what the schools teach, like back to front. And so, you know, it's very difficult to just dismantle that right away. But of course, uh, is, is it Corey DeAngelis, I believe, uh, with, with the, uh, you know, fund the schools, not system. Like that's a great, uh, or fund the, the students, not the system. That's a great movement. That's a great example of, you know, making sure that you can find ways to dismantle this stuff and move the funds in a way that would assist, you know, uh, more conservative people. Make sure that you have an incentive for homeschooling. Make sure that parents can keep the funding that they would have and instead apply it to homeschools, build incentives into homeschooling curriculums, you know, the, the kinds of people who are places where people are naturally going to have this kind of impetus. You know, there are, of course, uh, you know, faith-based ministries. There are, of course, uh, you're people who want to have larger families. Your natural conservative constituents are going to tend to be people who are interested in all of these things. And so building an infrastructure that supports that stuff does help. The main thing you want to do is avoid getting this infrastructure all just going to like, you know, business loans or something. You want to find a way that this is going to consistently get into the pockets of people, or at least create the structures that allow them to do the things they want to do outside of the current leftist patronage system. I think it's very difficult for the right to, to target a patronage network right now, because in many ways they don't know who they serve. Like they don't, they don't know who they would benefit. And so it's very difficult for them to imagine a program where they would, they would create those kind of incentives. If you enjoy High Noon, consider tuning in to Federalist Radio Hour, a daily podcast hosted by none other than one of my regular guests, Emily Jashinsky. The Federalist team of fearless journalists, including Molly Hemingway, Eddie Scary, and David Harciani, all join in the fun, breaking down politics and culture through interviews with politicians, entertainers, and thought leaders. It's smart, irreverent, provocative, and on the cutting edge of American political thought. Emily interviews thinkers from the right, the center, and even the left. The show covers every topic imaginable from niches like data privacy and immigration to big picture issues like feminism. If you want to be part of the conversation, don't miss Federalist Radio Hour, available every weekday wherever you download your podcasts. Yeah, that's this connected to this this concept of neutrality, right? That there has to be some kind of, um, that policy must be made on a neutral basis uh, and, and without regard to who your friends are, who your enemies are. 
um, without regard to who you want to support and deliver a real benefit to. Um, you know, what is it about? So uh, you've, you've written um, on how this neutrality is essentially a myth and it hasn't existed um, and that it, it was used only to unilaterally disarm one side of of the sort of actual heart of the values battle, right? The the actual positive, um, like advancement of some actual content, right? Um, not not something that's purely procedural or neutral, but but actual like moral and ideological content. Um, you know, I guess what do you think? Um, because the, the the difficulty with that, and I, I'm wholly in agreement with this concept, but then it, it does seem to uh, get real difficult um, very quickly because we already are such a diverse society, and I mean that in the in the direct way. Like even something like religion, uh, when you go back, there's very strong. Uh, essentially, there was a soft Protestant establishment in the United States, and people get mm-hmm. mad at me when I say that, but it, it was absolutely true, and I don't just mean that the states actually did have they many of them had established protestant churches congregationalists etc but even after that point we had a soft protestant establishment that was essentially so in the common schools broken by the advent of catholic immigration um and with every successive sort of addition to the american fabric which is now very uh very much actually diverse let's say let's stick with the the least controversial of of these diversities right Um, which is religious diversity um it's very hard to to actually that content, the content that was considered quote unquote neutral, um, which never was, was a sort of soft Protestantism. And I'm wondering whether you think it's possible to return to that kind of soft Protestantism and that content um, or whether I mean, because it seems like a really difficult project to find. Everyone agrees there must be like something here um, in common, but we may not have anything unless it's at such a high level of abstraction that it ceases to actually be powerful and meaningful in common. Yeah. So I don't think we're actually as diverse ideologically as, uh, as you're saying, or religiously. Uh, I think the dominant religion of the United States is uh, progressivism. I think it's so dominant that it exists in all of our uh, entertainment, all of our schooling, all of our media, it's the default. It is, it is the null hypothesis when it comes to any interaction in public life. I think the idea that we live in some kind of ideologically diverse or religiously diverse era is pretty, pretty laughable. We're as ideologically unified <laughs> on this basis as possible. Even many people on the right who don't think of themselves as, as being, you know, in this camp have onboarded vast amounts of the assumptions built around progressive liberalism. Um, so actually I think that we already have a religion. I don't think that, that that's particularly controversial, but maybe it is. No, no, I don't think that's controversial. I guess I was thinking about like, if you're going to displace that mm-hmm. as the default religion, it's very difficult for the right to come up with, come up with an alternative that would actually satisfy even the different portions of the right and even leaving aside sort of how much the right has imbibed liberalism. Um, I don't know here. I'm thinking about like the fact that we are seeing a, a religious um, kind of fall between the different religious traditions, right. Between Protestants and Catholics and Jews and even like even um, Hindus and <laughs> Muslims to some extent. Right. Um, but 
that seems to me to be a project that's very, very difficult to put together. If that group of people were to say, okay, we all disagree with the current null hypothesis, which I agree with you is, is this secular progressive liberalism. We all disagree with this null hypothesis. What can that group of people put forward that they would all agree with as an actual um, content to fill that vacuum? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's a massive problem. This is why liberalism arose in the first place, right? It's, it was the, the whole purpose of liberalism was to create the, uh, the idea of these uh, neutral institutions that would go govern people who could agree to some kind of bare minimum shared morality and would be able to kind of operate in the marketplace. Um, the idea was that there was a way to move beyond these conflicts of moral visions to create some kind of supra moral infrastructure that would allow all of these groups to interact. And, you know, after all these different religious wars and things that you can understand how that's very appealing, right? That, that makes plenty of sense. Uh, no one wants to constantly be in an existential battle uh, over these issues. Uh, but as we kind of saw that really this, this idea of neutrality was always false. Like we, we've been talking about, that was never the case. There was never a set of institutions that was simply making decisions based entirely on some kind of objective criteria of efficiency. And instead it went ahead and uh, forced its own values kind of upon the people uh, through the, through the guise of these neutral institutions. Now that the ideological uh, overtake is so obvious most people now realize that the, these things weren't aren't really neutral, but they kind of believed at some point that they were. And the reason, as you pointed out, is because at some point Protestantism was just the water in which Americans swam. And so things felt neutral because you had a certain level of natural cultural hegemony throughout uh, your different institutions in the United States. So the problem is, how do you return to that just organically? Um, you probably don't. Right. But the other issue is, do you just ignore it? Like, do you just ignore the fact that people in all of these different communities and all these different moral bases have pre-substantial uh, ways in which they differ on like how children should be reared or how men and women should conduct themselves or how businesses should be operated or how the criminal justice system should work? Like, can you just go back to ignoring this again? I think the answer is probably no. The only reason that you had kind of that illusion of that was, was again, that you had that, uh, that Protestantism baked in. I don't think the right can solve this problem. I really don't. Like I said, I really don't think the right knows who they serve or how they serve them at this point. They don't know how their coalition is constructed and they don't know how they would even come to a shared definition of the good, much less figure out how they would then build that shared definition of good into a framework for all these institutions. So then what, what happens, right? Um, if you don't have, so e even because your, your critique seems to be running deeper than, um, so even, even if the right comes up with, let's, let's say they, they come up with, with the um, sort of focus on, ha on capturing, recapturing these institutions, creating patronage network. Let's say they know uh, who, who they, who votes for them and how to make their lives better. Um, it still seems to me that, <laughs> I think you're right that we don't have a shared enough vision of the good in this country to continue. But what, what happens then? Right. Cause it seems to me like that, for example, the breakup of the United States is quite unrealistic. 
Um, maybe it gets more realistic as time goes on, but I, I but argued with other folks on this podcast before. Um, you know, it, this a lot of these these two sides. Um, one is completely, as we just said, fractured, and and the other one is dispersed geographically, and it just it doesn't seem to me. Um, to be a realistic proposition that these are actually two different nations. What they are are like a, a scattered uh, scatter plot, right? Um, of blue cities essentially inside red territory. Um, I mean, wh- where? So where do you think we we go from here if we accept that? Yeah, we have such radical visions, radically in some ways opposite visions of the good. Um, how how do we even come together and make? politics happen right how how do how, how do we form a political unit from from something that fractured yeah yeah the problem you're talking about is the most essential one is geography right because in the past these problems were solved by geography empires existed and empires existed generally by the central sovereign power more or less granting you know satrapy to some outlying province, right? So, you know, you might be a subject of Rome, but you're allowed to basically keep acting like Egyptians and worshiping the people that Egyptians worship and having the customs that Egyptians have, as long as you're willing to kick back to Rome, you know, you, you, you give the taxes, you get the levy and, and you continue on, you know, it's not always the case, but generally this is, this is how empires operate. And this is how different, people with fundamentally different values, different cultures, different moral visions were able to still live under the control of a particular sovereignty, right? What we have now is a situation where the people who agree with each other don't live next to each other. Like you said, we 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 could live across the country and have very similar, you know, moral visions or political understandings, but my neighbor next to me might have a radically different one and the neighbor next to you might have a radically different one. And that's a really big problem because then you can't really let things go back to federalism, right? And then because then you, you're you really divided more along the sides the, the uh, sides of urban versus rural as opposed to, you know, it's zip code, it's, it's not state. And so... I think the very likely thing, and and this is not, no one's going to give me an award for, uh, for, uh, you know, the, the white pills here. No one's going to be really excited about this, but the answer is I don't know that the right gets it together. Like if, if you don't have a moral vision to replace progressivism, a shared moral vision that people are willing to install into these institutions and protect them against these hostile ideologies that will eventually move into them, then I just think the right doesn't, doesn't probably control national politics, which means that you might have areas uh, you're going to see this. We've already seen it when, you know, self-sorting, we've already seen people moving to Florida or Texas or Tennessee to flee, you know, uh, COVID and other developments in, in these other places. Uh, you'll probably see the federal government continue to get very bad, about what it does and how it does it. It will probably continue to get more inept at enforcing its policy decisions. And while I'm with you that I doubt we'll see a hard national divorce, I think, you know, most people who are critical of national divorce are right about the fact that it's very unlikely that you'll see a formal fracturing of the United States. I think the former likely thing that will happen is the left will get so bad at governance and DC will get so inept at enforcing its dictates 
that eventually the the uh, states that are able to secure some kind of right wing you know governor who's willing to push back will simply start ignoring as much of their policies as possible. And over time, as so is often the case with the collapse of empires, it's not so much that there's some kind of formal announcement that you know America is over. But it just turns out that the more successful states, the ones that are able to protect themselves from kind of the complete degeneracy of Washington, D.C., will eventually just kind of emerge as the winners. And the federal government will have a harder and harder time imposing any changes on them. So that's not the worst vision I've ever heard. Um, But there are two there are two different and in the terms of like that, that actually sounds not as bad as some of the alternatives. Yeah, sure. Um, But. Uh, there's two immediate questions about that that would spring to mind or challenges to that happening. One is, look, the the left is not Rome. They're not satisfied with the tithing, right? Um, oh, yeah. They're not, they're not satisfied with the kickback, right? Uh, we can't, Florida can't just write a check to Washington and then just succeed outside of the check, right? Um, there, there are um, a myriad of ways in which Washington's still dysfunctional as it can, as it is, is able to enforce its will against states. And, and part of this, um, you know, funny how sometimes uh, cons- libertarian concerns do pop back up uh, and, and become relevant uh, in totally different ways than libertarians actually advance them. But for example, in the in context of what you just said, it's very important that the red states are generally um, in debt to Washington, mm. right? That they can't run their budgets without federal involvement. That's a really important problem to solve, right? Um, And then the second thing is you can't conduct a foreign policy, right? In that kind of situation, those are the two immediate things I was thinking of. I mean, what happens to American foreign policy in, in that kind of situation, well, American foreign policy is the machine of the empire, right? Like there's a there's a very clear incentive on both sides of power to kind of keep us in in forever wars and 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 discover new and important ways in which we can deliver freedom to the frontiers. The the in the collapse of empires, the the money's always in the provinces, right? There's a reason that we're basically stripping our bases in the United States and emptying our armories to ship a bunch of uh ammunition and and uh and other uh, weapons over to the ukraine to fight a proxy war right like this is this is always late stage empire stuff and so what will happen to the you know foreign policy of of the united states they'll keep trying to push this global hegemon thing until it breaks i mean a lot of the a lot of the interest in the kind of the conflict with russia was is Russia able to push to push back, right? Like, and I would like to clarify here that Vladimir Putin is a very bad person. I have no affinity for Russia or Putin here. But what's interesting in the geopolitical sense was like, he can he call the bluff of kind of the world community? Like, are they distracted enough? Are the pl- supply uh, are the supply chain strained enough? Is the global interdependence of commodities already so far advanced that they can't? really push back against Putin, that kind of thing. Looked at first, like the answer would be yes, actually, they couldn't do it. They couldn't pull it off. You know, the oil prices, everything, economic, you know, the impact. But as Russia's kind of not uh, not had a lot of success in certain parts of the war, it, the question is ongoing. We don't really know 
it, it's difficult even at this point to even get accurate reporting on what's happening there. But yeah, I mean, you're right that the foreign policy of the United States takes a very significant hit. And that's really unfortunate because there's a lot of really nasty people who would like to hurt the United States or would like to take over like regional control and do very ugly things in their arenas. But, you know, if the United States is basically just willing to turn its country into some kind of, you know, uh, staging area for global techno capital, then kind of one of the eventual costs that it pays is the degradation of the homeland because they're too busy trying to affect policy somewhere out in the middle of Eastern Europe. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I don't, I'm not sure I agree with the framing, first of all, as a proxy war, but uh, that's an entire debate. But it seems to me that that the reason that the war didn't init- initially in the in like, let's say in three weeks, over in three weeks, right, um, the way that well, it's hard to know what Putin actually thought would happen, but in my view, he very clearly miscalculated and thought the war would be over quite quickly because he'd be able to topple uh, the, the government in in Kiev very, very relatively quickly because there wasn't going to be internal resistance. It seems to me that it's not so much the United States now. Now it's the United States, right? That's arming Ukraine and, and allowing them to continue this war. But initially. I think Putin read us right. I mean, I, I think uh, the West dithered and and didn't, you know, didn't actually effectively counter. Uh, and and the 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 X factor in all of this was the fact that Ukrainians didn't act like Afghani's, right? Um, that they actually did have a sense of of, uh, of nationality and a way that uh, was not expected, especially by the ideology um, in in Russia. And that was the but that doesn't seem to me to to fit your your thesis then about like so leaving aside Ukraine for a moment though that the the larger question for Americans um, would be <laughs> does does the American empire endure abroad while completely collapsing at home um, is it possible that essentially the, the American empire can be the empire of woke or whatever it is. Um, when that ideology is so unable to produce produce things at home, because your 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 thesis um, of, or your sort of idea of the evolving power centers within the United States, where it kind of depends on the degradation of this ideology uh, being able to actually be competent in enforcing its will. And my question is, if it's not competent to enforce its will in Florida, how is it going to enforce it in Ukraine or anywhere else? This is a weird uh, thing because it actually seems hyper competent at enforcing itself outside the United States, which is odd because if you think that the United States is ground zero, that that's confusing, right? But actually, it's very common for many of especially kind of the Commonwealth you know, countries to be hyper uh, you know, woke actually to, to, to go well beyond the United States in certain areas, to be clear. It's not uniform across, but it's very common for the, for movements of the United States, uh, you know, BLM to suddenly emerge in places where there is no history of any kind of, you know, sure, chattel yeah. slavery or any of this stuff, right? So like it, in, and in many ways that, you know, we look at the, we look at the reactions to things like, uh, the pandemic. 
And it's very clear that um, many countries were willing to go far beyond what the United States was willing to do, even though the United States was was pushing for those kinds of things at home. Part of that is because the United States um, and then like basically like the State Department is a, is an arm of blue America and has far more control over the satraps than it does even of regions of the United States. But it, I, I, it's, you know, to be fair, like it's not you don't want to completely um, just pretend like the, the United States is the center of the world and in all in all issues like these things do unfold differently in different areas there are regional concerns and reasons that they plug in and it's foolish to just entirely be like well because harvard declared it the entire world follows it because you know because america is is the center of all policy but when i do talk to people you know i talk to people in places like romania and they say yeah no like if you know women can't get abortions in alabama that's the hot topic of conversation in romania Right. Like, so when when you have that kind of cultural influence in places that should be just historically completely disconnected from these issues, I think it's entirely reasonable for like actually the the wokeness to have more influence in many of these satellite nations than it does even at home. But the the questions of competence was, was your other one. I don't want to talk too long there, but we can get to the competence part as well. Yeah, no, please, please do, because the, the competence piece of this, I go back and forth on the competence piece of this, because on the one hand, this ideology seems so radically out of step with reality that it's difficult for me to believe that they can endure with any sort of level of competence for very long. Um, but, I mean, wealth is a great solve to that. And the United States is very, very wealthy like wildly wealthy <laughs> by the standards of the world and money covers for a lot of things for a long time. It seems to me like um, I had Aaron Sibarium on, on this podcast and we were talking about, we, we used the the phrase planes falling out of the sky, right? Ultimately, if you this was when Delta first announced, Oh, we're going to do racial quotas on our, our pilots, half our pilots are going to be women and a quarter of them are going to be black by whatever 2025 or something. Right. Um, you know, eventually if you, you imagine if you complete your hiring that way, you're going to have more plane accidents. But how long is that going to take? I mean, planes are, are uh, this is just uh, like the sort of the analogy for the whole system here. You know, planes are really well designed. They're very expensive. Um, most of flights go on autopilot. It's a small fraction that ever go down. Um, a, a smaller fraction of that is pilot error, right? Even if that increases, you're talking about maybe one more airplane crash a year. And how, you know, how many of those are you going to have to have before you tie together all those dots and say, oh, it's actually this affirmative action program, essentially this quota system that is causing this breakdown in competency. Um, when, when all of the incentives, as we've been talking about for the last 40 minutes, right, all of the incentives are the opposite, not to conclude that, right? And not to speak that fact. I mean, you, one can easily imagine the increase of the rate, you know, of planes falling out of the sky from one a year to two a year to three a year or whatever. And that process going on for a very long time before anyone is willing to say in any meaningful way, the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. For those waiting for the natural snapback, you, you might die of, of boredom. I, I, you know, the question I always get asked is, you know, how can this go on forever? And it probably can't eventually, but it's a very long, there's a lot, a lot of runway there to, to uh, attach to our plane metaphor here. I mean, the, the, think about what's already happening. Think about what people are already adjusting their expectations, right? 
you talk to people and there's this there's this uh, retconning of history that's going on, right? Um, you know, they look at the, the 1950s and they say, well, people never really owned homes and they never really had intact families. And it was never like this. This is all idealized. It's never really the case. This was, you know, this was never really true. And similarly, people are, will adjust. They'll, they'll, you'll, you th- see these places where, you know, theft is very common. They're, they're locking spam and anti-theft containers, this kind of stuff. And, you know, people will tell themselves the same lie. Oh, no, you, you know, they always had this kind of stuff. There's there never this mythical time where, you know, you could just walk the streets safely or, you know, you could walk into a store and expect half the stuff not to be locked behind and have to have an assistant come over and get that. And there, there was never a time where, you know, shoplifters didn't come in and take, you know, half the store while people just stared onward. Uh, that just wasn't the case, right? Like, it's amazing what people will adjust to. Um, and, you know, the C.S. Lewis wrote this book, um, uh, um, The um, Abolition of Man. And he talks about in The Abolition of Man how basically social engineers over time will adjust kind of what you're expecting and what you'll get used to and how you see the world. And over time, they're stripping the mystification out of the world. And they're, they're through that, they're able to kind of program people by, you know, kind of adjusting their inputs and their outputs. And they're basically getting rid of kind of everything that's going to make people human. Uh, and once you've had the generation that's completely programmed, once you've had the generation where every single human impulse has been stripped out of them and they've been completely trained on a spreadsheet through a plan, all their natural impulses replaced by pre-programmed things that they've been educated into. At that point, you will have actually you successfully uh, had the abolition of man because that generation don't won't even know what to appeal back to. At the end of the day, they won't even know how to look backwards into humanity because they never had that frame of reference in the first place. It's a pretty dire vision. Uh, I don't know if we're completely there yet, but the process is real and it's ongoing. And we're seeing how far we can stretch the limits of kind of human social planning. Uh, it didn't die with the Soviet Union. It's live and well today. Uh, managers are basically top down trying to reprogram humanity into the most efficient, manageable widgets they can by shaving off basically all the bumps and bruises that make them human. And the question is, how long can you do that before the mean machine falls apart? Like you said, wealth is a powerful tool. It seems like we can do it for a long time. Eventually, you think it's got to fall apart, but uh, there, there's a lot there. There's a lot of time between here and there. Yeah, I mean, look, the Soviet Union lasted a long time, too. Um, yep. But let's close with this. What's the role of tech in all of this? Because... Um, a lot of that shaving of the bumps and bruises, uh, and, and even a lot of the forgetfulness that you're referencing, like that even it seems like a lot of people don't even remember what life was like in 2019, right? Um, and, and that seems like sort of glittered over as, 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 a almost even in our memories, it seems kind of embossed in Boston and Amber. And I, I think, um, the nineties even more so. And I think there's probably some story here for people exactly around, I think our ages, a little older, a little younger, uh, because we remember the nineties, but <laughs> the nineties were in some way that there's a reason that people thought it could reach the end of history, right? There, there was, um, there, it was, it was a decade with enormous amount of surface level, um, 
sort of good things, right? Uh, enormous wealth. Um, the, the culture wars were not as intense in the 90s um, as they are today. There, there, there's a reason that the sort of center left folks we, we started this podcast talking about um, harken back to the 90s and say, well, why can't we go back there? Because it, on the surface of it, um, it was a very nice decade for the United States, right? Right after the victory in the Cold War. Um, but but what role does technology play in making that kind of forgetfulness either more or less possible? Because I could see it going either way, right? Like on the one hand, we have more video and we can share in the 24-hour news cycle and it's harder to sort of, um, it's harder to do anything in private. Uh, but on the other hand, it seems like we're losing our attention span we're unable to understand and, and communicate across generations. Um, we may not even be producing the next generation. I mean, so where where is the role of technology and perhaps hyper novelty in all of this? I mean, it's pretty massive. Uh, you know, Mark Fisher made a good point about how we basically end up with kind of this eternal culture because we have so many uh, n- now with technology, all culture is available all the time in theory, right? So you, if you want to listen to, you know, pop songs from the seventies or metal from the eighties or, you know, backstreet boys in the two thousands, you, you don't actually have to listen to what's on the radio. You don't actually have to watch what's on TV. You don't actually have to read whenever everyone else is reading or experience all the events everyone else is experiencing. You can kind of run away into these subcultures, right? These niches. And that's what we've seen in a lot of places, as we talked about with the geographic thing, right? Your, your cultures are no longer tied to your geography. Your social experiences are no longer tied to the people around you, the people who actually make your society and your, the, the, uh, the, the uh, community around you function. And so because of that, it's very difficult to actually form like a real culture. That's one of the reasons the 90s feels like the last real time, because it was the last decade to exist before we had this always online, always present ability to kind of reach backwards and experience kind of anything we wanted at, at any moment. And so it's very difficult now for us to kind of coalesce and create something outside of what's being piped in, you know, uh, through, through all these different institutions, you know, you can, you can run away if you don't like what's being blasted on, you know, Netflix or in your local school, you can go run away to one of these time periods, but you don't actually have to go out and create your own counterculture, you know, because there's always some, some place to escape to. So that that's a huge part of it. The other big problem is of course, that technology like constantly allows people to, interact at every point with kind of the regime propaganda. It forces them in many ways to react, react, interact with the regime propaganda. And that's a huge problem. I think everyone kind of recognizes the ability of this stuff to completely take over entertainment and all that stuff. And and constantly people are connected to this. Uh, They get this flow of information constantly that that's unavoidable. Uh, Their attention spans don't allow them to kind of do anything else but absorb the bite-sized bits that are processed by kind of the the regime in its most sleek formations. But obviously, this also allows counter-information to get in. You know, we we have an alternative media in a way that wasn't possible, uh, you know, a few decades ago. You have the complete fracturing of the entertainment world in certain areas, especially when it comes to news and podcasts and that kind of thing. And so people can seek out anything culturally, but they might seek out stuff like this. And so you do have the option for people to explore uh, ideas and, and, you know, solutions that were not going to be talked about on like the three major 
cable networks or, or the three major broadcast networks or whatever back in the day. So technology's got a lot of problems around what's happening with this. It's a lot of challenges. It's a big, uh, it creates a lot of the symptoms that we're looking at, but it does give you the opportunity to organize or, or introduce people to information that they otherwise would have never had a chance uh, to do so beforehand. And I think that's pretty important. Yeah, and and you're one of those people. So um, please follow Oren and uh, Oren McIntyre on Twitter, his um, Substack, and then his work over at the Blaze. Um, is there any any anything else uh, anywhere else people can find your your ideas? Yeah, no, the the, the YouTube channel and, uh, and the podcast, um, and then uh, yeah, everything goes up on the Blaze as well. So those are the best places to find me. Great. Well, thank you so much for for uh, spending an hour with us on High Noon. I really appreciate it, Oren. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.